You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptivity DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Beatant with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two stunningly sensational, uh, sexy co-hosts, Dr. Abby <laughs> Edlund from Nashville Fertility Center. Thanks, Carrie. Hey. And Dr. Susan Hudson from uh, Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. And we are joined again by uh, Amy Beckley of Prove. She's a PhD pharmacist and is uh, ridiculously smart on all sorts of nuanced components of the pharmacology of how we do all the testing that we do. So we do it all in the office and she's figured out ways to do uh, much of that at home. So, um, but we were just talking. So now that it's you know, post post holidays and everybody's had random gifts and all of those things. Um, you had a secret Santa gift that was extra special for you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So last time you had me on, and thank you for having me again. Um, we talked about how I'm an avid Pelotoner, mm-hmm. and so I happened to get my Peloton on a Black Friday sale a couple years ago, and then randomly one day there was this beautiful mug that just shows up at my house, <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God, it's my two-year anniversary. And I've been writing almost every single day. Peloton <laughs> must love me that they're just going to send me stuff. So I go on social media and I'm posting about how amazing Peloton was, and how awesome it was. <laughs> so fast forward to, you know, a couple of weeks later, we had our secret Santa event and we go through and everyone's like, well, Amy, what'd you get? I'm like, I don't know. My secret Santa forgot about me. And so oh, one no. of my employees said, actually, remember that mug three weeks ago? <laughs> That was it. And I was like, oh my God. Why didn't you tell me? You're like such an idiot. You obviously like, loved it though. Exactly. Exactly. So that's how you know it's a good gift. If you're going to go, go on social media and like rant about it, it's great. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Peloton should have been thanking you because you gave them great publicity on, on social media. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of Peloton. <laughs> so is that your go-to coffee mug for every single day now? Absolutely. This is actually, yeah, it's it's a great mug. It's very like thick. It holds enough coffee. It's got a little curve to it. Fits your hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then it's got the bring your spirit. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I think I think it should fit, be able to fit, you know, underneath your Peloton like your water bottle does. I think it should be a coffee mug like that. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's going to fit. <laughs> that's fabulous. Um, okay. Susan, do we have any questions for today? We do have a question. All right. Hi, I love your podcast. It helped me so much when I was trying to get pregnant with my first baby. Here's some background. In 2018, I had surgery to remove a uterine septum and was diagnosed with endometriosis. After a year of trying, they were referred to an RE at the end of 2020. Um, All the tests came back normal, did four rounds of Medicaid IUI and got pregnant on the fourth try. 
Their little boy was born March 3rd via emergency C-section. At six-week appointment, they had an explanation in place for birth control. OB felt it was the best option because it prevented periods and was going to help her endometriosis. Um, also recommended waiting 24 months before starting to try again after her C-section. I always want to follow hmm. my ob advice because she's a great doctor and I trust her, but I worry about two things. In two years, I'll be 36. And I know age can affect fertility. Also, our RA is very close to retirement. It has medical issues of his own and will likely be retiring practice in two years. He is currently the only RE in the state that she lives in. The next closest would be two hours away and wouldn't be covered by my insurance since they're out of state. His office is trying to recruit a new RE, but has been unsuccessful. Should they wait the full two years or would be okay trying sooner, like at 12 or 18 months? What can I do in the meantime to preserve my fertility? When do we start trying? Uh, uh, when do we start trying? Should we start with the RE or trying on our own? It's a great question. Great questions. Lots of questions. Yeah. So what do you guys think? So I well, think 24 to... months is a bit extreme unless, I mean... That's a long time. It was an emergency C-section. So I'm wondering if she had to have a vertical incision on her uterus. With the exception of a vertical or teed incision, I think 12 months is usually adequate, um, especially when we look at, you know, advancing maternal age and, and the risks there. So I, I think... In the absence of something that we don't know, I mean, most emergency C-sections are still going to be what we call a low transfer C-section. And mm -hmm. as long as it was that type, I, I think that would probably be 12 months is probably adequate. Yeah, you so, can also do a saline sonogram too to kind of evaluate that C-section scar, make sure it's healed well for sure. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Carrie. Oh, so I was going to say I was lecturing about a month, month and a half ago to my residents. And I came in, so before, before we do lectures, there's oftentimes M&M, which is how residents and trainees and physicians learn about things that have gone wrong. And it's a literature review and it's a very educational thing. And so they, I came in at the end of that and they were talking about the time length in between C-section to repeat C-section, hmm. uh, or excuse me, from C-section to next conception. And, you know, I was always along the lines of, you know, roughly 12 months is a good time to go. Yeah. Uh, healing. And they actually sent me an article that was relatively recent that said um, 18 months is now standard. Really? And so that is huh. brand new brand new information. And so it's something that... Um, what are the absolute... The, the question is absolute risk versus relative risk put in the light of advancing age. You know, I think that's something you'd have to look at, wouldn't you think, Carrie? Uh, absolutely. And it's something I'm trying to pull up the article and it is... Uh, buried deep within, I think it's actually within my uh, my library files. So I need to go back and I'll, I'll see if I can pull that. But um, the one other thing to think about for that patient, and I know this wouldn't necessarily be the route she'd want to go, but she could always go through IVF, um, retrieve eggs, make embryos, freeze those. Mm -hmm. And I know she hadn't done IVF before, but that would also be potentially a way that she could sort of stop her time clock in a way mm -hmm. by making embryos. And then two years later, whatever the time frame is, transfer those embryos at that point. Because it would be okay to do the egg retrieval. It just wouldn't be okay based on what our OBGYN is saying to get pregnant sooner than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. And I would also, it sounds like you have insurance coverage where you are. Um, most of the time, if you ended up in a situation where you had absolutely no one in a certain reasonable geographic distance, they, they can do exceptions. Um, I see these happen in Texas all the time because even though... It's a big state and we have a decent number of REs. A lot of us tend to be centered 
near um, big cities. And we got a lot of geography that's not close to big cities. So um, I, I have quite a few patients who come to see me, but it, they get exceptions because there's no one close to them. So um, mm-hmm. looking into that, you know, you might not be quite as in a deficit as what and no one wants to drive two hours. I completely get that. But um, yeah. remember telemedicine is now here to stay, hopefully. And um, so take advantage of that. And um, like I said, sometimes you're in, if you do have insurance coverage, you can get geographic exceptions um, if you don't have somebody near you. It's a good point. Yeah. Telemedicine is a beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. And last question was, should she start trying on her own or go straight to her RE? I think time's getting kind of close. I would at least talk to an RE first and get some advice from them. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in trying in the interim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just would be aware of the time trap that that is true for all of our patients of the, oh, I'm just going to try one more month and just one more month and just one more month. And three years later, here we are with a bigger issue when all of a sudden you're 36, 37 and, and we're seeing more, more issues with um, timing. But I think just the inherent trying on your own isn't, isn't a problem, but I would do multiple things at the same time. Yes, I agree. All right. All right. So today we were going to talk about um, an issue that's one of the more frustrating ones that all of us deal with, which is uh, recurrent pregnancy loss. And Amy, you you had mentioned the last time we were talking about you have a really pretty extensive history of losses. What what happened and how did things go? And um, what's what's that background? Yeah, I had seven. Um, has not been a, a particularly fun journey, but because of what I invented and what I built after it, it makes what I went through um, meaningful. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I was 28, uh, newly married, had a, you know, started my postdoc after my PhD, was starting to build a career, bought that nice house in the nice neighborhood, you know, researched the schools. I was like, oh, you know, I'm totally going to get pregnant. It's great. Um, tried about six months, um, about seven or eight months into it, got my first pregnancy test, uh, positive pregnancy test. It was on Mother's Day. Um, a, few, a few days before Mother's Day, and I was just over the moon excited. It was just wonderful. And then on Mother's Day, I started bleeding. Oh. And I, That's I the felt, suckiest period ever. I yeah. know, I know, I know. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, but then I felt like, okay, well, this is the silver lining that at least now some I can go to a doctor because typically that you're trying for 12 months by yourself because I was under 35. Um, and this was kind of increase the time clocked. I'm like, okay, at least I can go in and like ask them what's wrong with me. Um, and so I went in and I said, I had this pregnancy loss. And they said, well, you know, it's, it's just normal. One out of four pregnancies end in loss. It just happens. Um, there's really nothing we can do about it. Just go back home um, and let us, you know, know the next time you're pregnant and, you know, and call for an, an appointment. So I said, okay, uh, okay. <laughs> I really didn't know how to act other than, Okay, I guess I'm at this alone. Um, but it is true. Most pregnancy losses are unavoidable. Um, they're mostly genetic. Something happens, sperm and egg, um, and it doesn't doesn't work out. And most of the time, you go on to have a successful pregnancy the next time. And so the next time came, and I got a pre- positive pregnancy test. And I was a little reserved at this point, um, but kind of excited. Um, 
And, you know, I take them, you know, one after another, make sure it was positive, was the line getting darker, like anything I could possibly do because they don't want to see you until you're like six and a half weeks along, um, or I think it's like almost eight weeks now. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to like try to not stress out and kind of like sit around and, and not do anything crazy because <laughs> I thought, you know, maybe something I was doing was caused the loss. Um, but again, I lost it. Um, and then again, I called the OB office and I told them this was my second loss. And they said, well, if you have a third one, then call us. We'll do some testing. Uh, there's really nothing we can do here. And I felt very hopeless, um, just very alone and just like I didn't have any answers. And so then we hit the 12-month mark. We went to an RE. And in the care of an RE, I got some additional testing. Everything turned out normal. I didn't have any clotting factors. I didn't have any other you know, issues. Everything was fine. And then I have another loss. Um, and then another loss. And then finally, we just decided to do IVF because I just did not want any more losses. Yeah. I didn't want to wait any, any longer. Um, and that was successful. So I have a 12-year-old IVF baby. Um, but I was just... I was so... So I'm a scientist. I, I study hormones. And I was just very frustrated with the idea that women didn't have anything that they could do while they were waiting. Um and we always internalize it as it's something I did. I oh, like I, you know, I had sex while I was pregnant and that must have dislodged it. Or I ate that turkey lunch meat, it must have caused <laughs> the loss. Um, I went to to Vegas um after having a positive pregnancy test. It was a girl's trip, and I had tonic water, no, no alcohol, none at all, tonic water. And then I had a loss, and I'm madly Googling, and it turns out like the Compound and in, in tonic water sometimes leads to <laughs> loss, and I'm like, okay, that was that's what caused my my loss, right? And so it's like you just you think you of it. Blame somebody. Exactly, exactly. And so you know, after I had my son, I went in. I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. So I already told this story in the other one, so I'm not going to go into it again. But basically, it turned out to be a low progesterone issue after ovulation, and I got pregnant naturally, but with luteal phase progesterone to allow me to finally have a child um, without a loss um, that was not, not uh, an IVF baby. And so, you know, I invented Prove because Prove is a testing system to help you understand if things are okay. So it's a screening tool. So just like you would do an STD screening, you also want to screen for your hormones to make sure everything's okay. Um, and it's just something you can do to like check the box and say, okay, you know, everything looks good. Um, because what I did find out is that while 75% of pregnancies are unavoidable, it is genetic, it is sperm and egg didn't meet. There's about 25% of them are of them that are what I call preventable. And those are things that you can prevent. One of them being, you know, uh, hormone issues. So if you have a um, underactive thyroid, it's really hard to make progesterone. It's really hard for ovaries to function. So something that women could do is get their thyroid tested. I mean, mm -hmm. Everly Well, all these companies have these at-home tests. If you don't have a physician, go get your thyroid levels checked. You know, you can go Quest directly and, and go get a, a lab draw. It makes it really convenient. Um, the other one is, is progesterone. So you don't have enough progesterone to support pregnancy. So get your progesterone levels checked. Um, another one is infection. So they also have STD panels. 
Um, there's this big thing with like vaginal microbiome, and sometimes some of the 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 microbes that are that are present in the vaginal canal can lead to higher miscarriage rates. Um, there's also um, structural issues in the uterus that can be removed. Right, that needs a physician, obviously, um, to do. <laughs> but um, just kind of educating women to be a little more proactive because. We have a lot of consumers that come to us, a lot of women that are just, they're hopeless and they're lost and they think the loss is, is their fault. And just empowering women with things that they can do to be proactive and education about, you know, it is common, but sometimes there is something you can do to prevent another loss and just to have those those better questions. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, your kit proof can check for a lot of those things, correct? So estrogen and progesterone and FSH. And one question I had about the progesterone, because certainly, you know, we know that that can contribute to miscarriage. If a woman does a kit, say this month, what are the chances that if she does it the next month and the month after that, she'll get the same result? What's the cycle to cycle variability with things like progesterone, for example? That's a really good question. and I don't know that answer. Um, but typically if you have two good cycles, you can kind of cross it off the list as like, I probably most likely don't have an ovulatory issue. Uh-huh. Um, but when you have a bad, like a, a, yeah, a bad cycle where you're not producing enough PDG, which is a progesterone metabolite, um, in urine across, you know, when implantation occurs, then you could be at higher risk for having ovulatory issues that, that need treatment. Um, but like things like diet and exercise and stress really impacts it. Um, I know we're we're coming off of COVID. COVID had a huge impact on women's cycles. Um, and we would see very low estrogen and very low progesterone levels one or two cycles after. And so there can be things where you had a, a stressful loss or maybe you just had a miscarriage and your body needs a cycle or two to kind of get back into the swing of ovulating again. Or maybe you just got off birth control your body needs to remember how to ovulate and make these hormones that we do see that women will have a low score, meaning they didn't ovulate very well or not at Mm -hmm. all. And then it turns better. We do see, you know, diet and exercise can actually affect that, you know, getting put on a really good prenatal um, can actually help improve scores, cleaning up diet, eating kind of more clean, taking out a lot of the sugars that can help as well. Um, If you have PCOS doing inositols, um, is is really helpful as well. One thing I'd like to mention, you mentioned about coming off of birth control pills. Um, just for our listeners, um, if you're on birth control pills and you are coming off though, realize that there's also some good data that says your highest chances of getting pregnant yeah. are in those first like three months. And so at the time that you're the least predictable, you're also potentially <laughs> the most fertile. And so um, yeah. don't you know, it, it's it's one of those situations where you could have some issues, but also know that if you're getting off, there is a very real Still try. possibility <laughs> that that yeah. you could that you could get pregnant. So don't be like, oh, well, we really want to get pregnant in three months from now, so I'm gonna stop them now, so that um, I I I'm you know because we have a trip planned and I don't want anything to happen in the next three months. That's probably not a great timing um, yeah. scenario. That is so true. One thing I've learned with studying women's cycle is there is no normal. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, there's some women that are super fertile and there's some, some women that aren't after birth control. Like, there's no like hard and true facts. It'd be interesting kind of seeing how like taking um, just because this is neat because you can do it at home. So you don't have to worry about getting 
sick. And, you know, one thing that we've seen over the past couple of years is kind of menstrual cycle irregularity from people getting COVID and how that plays into it. And potentially, I'm, I'm giving you a research idea here. So, <laughs> um, but using, using like prove in like the first six months after a COVID infection to really kind of see what kind of hormonal changes. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. And you don't have to worry about people getting infected and stuff from, you know, going in in that in that time frame. So just an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I I had COVID a year, 14 months ago, and I was tracking my cycle. And then we had a, a bunch of women that were tracking their cycle. And the patterns we saw were elevated FSH at the beginning. So typically my FSH levels are about an eight or a nine. I'm 42. Um, but the cycle after I had COVID, it was an 18. Um, mm. Yeah. And we just kept getting women reporting really high FSH levels. So we started asking the question, did you recently have COVID? And a lot of them were like, yes. Or like, no, but I had a really bad cold. Like, oh, okay. And so... <laughs> what did we you think have to not that, swab your nose? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I think was happening was your body basically releases FSH to say... To, so the ovaries basically shut down and saying, hey, wait, we're sick. We have to heal. This is not a good time to get pregnant. And so your ovary just becomes somehow, I don't know how, becomes unresponsive. And so your body has more FSH to kick the ovaries into gear. Um, and then when you do ovulate that cycle, it takes longer to ovulate. And then your hormones are also much lower that cycle. And so I think it's just nature's mechanism of saying, you know what, you are not healthy right now. We need to heal first before we can make a house for baby. It's fascinating. I wonder if there's more twins after COVID because you have, when you have a higher FSH level, you're more likely to get multiple. Yeah, that's a good, hey, that'd be a good study too. (laughs) These random questions. So Amy, how did you, how did you mentally and emotionally survive because seven miscarriages, I mean, we we have people who they hit two and they're like, I'm done. I'm not going to try. I'm over it. And to keep going after all of those losses, what what did you do and how did you get through to keep going? I don't know. I absolutely had moments <laughs> where I was in the fetal position and my husband was spooning me and he was telling me, okay, we just won't have kids and which actually made it worse. Right. Yeah. They're trying to be the best man that they can. (laughs) I will support you. But like, you're like, no. Um, But I think it was my scientific mind where it was like, I refuse to fail. Like I, I, I know there's, there's a reason why I can't have, I can't keep this pregnancy and I will not stop until I figure this out. So yes, it was very emotionally draining and just so, so, so hard. But the idea of trying to figure out what it was and getting to that end result. Like I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to let this beat me. I was Mm -hmm. going to beat it. Um, And so just kind of, you know, you have to have your day, you have to have your ice cream and your, your cry session and your, your partner. (laughs) Gotta have that. But then you gotta be like, you know what? This isn't, this isn't my lot in life. I refuse to let Mm -hmm. this be my fate. I'm going to try something else. Right. And so that's why I was, you know, excessively Googling and researching and thinking about different things and having conversations with my doctors and not refusing. And so, you know, that's what I advocate to all of our users right now is like, you're the expert in you. Your doctor is the expert in medicine. 
And when you can have that conversation together, where you talk about your experiences and their medical expertise, that's where you're going to get to the solution the fastest. Mm -hmm. So the better, more detailed history that you have of yourself, better chance you're going to resolve your issue um, in a positive way. Were you talking to anyone else besides, I mean, obviously your husband, obviously your RE, but did you did you have any outside besides those two people uh, support and cheerleaders and and all that throughout this? Um, not officially. Um, I had um, you know I was like I don't even know what my name was like TTC Bunny Twenty One or something weird like that. Where I would go on these like private forums and I would post and you you build these relationships with these random women that you don't know, but you don't want to tell your mother and you don't want to tell Mm -hmm. your friends like you're in this closet, but having these online forums where you create friends and you create people that are going through it was, you know, one of my saving graces because I had an outlet. Um, And that's why we have a really big community at prove where we do it through Instagram and Facebook, Facebook, you have to put your name on there, but Instagram, you don't. Mm -hmm. And so we offer support to women when they need it, when we know that we might be the only lines of communication this woman has to help educate her about different things um, because it is very isolating. I mean, I went through it and I just, I felt so low and just, I, I, how could I be a woman if I couldn't have kids? Like it sounds crazy, but it's like you, that maternal instinct like kicks in and you're like, I have, I'm nothing if I can't have kids and you just don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to do anything. And you can sit, you Always, always think about fertility. Every single time you go to the bathroom, you're looking at your toilet paper. Am I spotting? Is it fertile, fertile mm-hmm. surrogal mucus? Yeah. Like I, <laughs> you can't, you know, get it out of your mind. Um, and so, yeah, these, these online forums were so, so amazing. And actually, I have friends, legitimate friends now that I met through the process. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it's great. What did your husband do? I mean, he had you, he had the RE as well, but what was his outlet? Um, he would talk to his dad um, about it, um, which I didn't know until actually afterwards. <laughs> um, but it was it was more hard on him than I thought it was. Yeah. And so I remember having a really really traumatic loss and thinking, you know, because we had seen the heartbeat, we were like, oh, okay, yeah. it's great, and we had the ultrasound picture and we framed it, we gave it to grandma and grandpa. And then like literally the next day, I should have bleeding, like not even kidding, like literally the next day. And so I went into the ER and it was like, we were on vacation at the time. So I wasn't at home. It was the ER, didn't find a heartbeat. And I was like, oh my gosh. And that was so emotional because I had taken, I had told people now. Yeah. Right. And I thought I was safe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I saw the heartbeat, like I was safe. Right. Um, and it was hard on him to see me like that. And so he would just say, oh, well, we're not going to do this anymore. Like we're just going to stop because it's just, it's so hard on you. And which, you know, he was trying to do the best he could, but it was very hard on me. Trying to protect you. I was like, no, no, no. I just need my, my week of, of grieving time. Like, please, this is not the end of our story. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's important for our listeners to know that realize that you and your partner are both grieving just as you described but also know that you may not be at the same stage of grieving as as your partner. And it's okay for one person to not necessarily be in sync with the other person, but know that you both are really going through through this process together. Yeah, I mean, they've done um, 
scientific studies where they look at different diagnosis and the mental impact that it has on people, uh, miscarriage and infertility are up there with cancer and HIV. Like it's big, like it is emotionally one of the worst News. Those are studies done by Ali Domar in Boston. Those are some great studies. I think it really validates women's feelings because when I tell patients about this, they're like, wow, you mean people that have recurrent cancer have the same, you know, symptoms that I have? And and they do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did you take any additional medications besides progesterone or did you think about anything additional? You had mentioned you had a bunch of the clotting studies and Part of the reason we do that is trying to figure out is someone an appropriate candidate for Lovenox or not, which is a blood thinner. But um, did you look into any other potential, just empiric, meaning no data, but we think this might work, kind yeah. of medications? Yeah. yeah, people ask me this all the time. I actually did low-dose aspirin. Um, also, uh, dexamethasone is another one, like a really low-dose dexamethasone. Um, but I, I did low dose aspirin myself. You can get it, you know, anywhere that sells medications. Um, and I took that, you know, beginning of my cycle all the way until about 35 weeks or so, because they said if I had a C-section that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. need to be off of it, off of blood thinners for a while. But I remember having conversations with RE and he was like, you don't need it. All your, your testing's fine. And then going in the literature and just looking at the data and it never hurt anything. And if anything, it sometimes had a benefit. And so I just said, you know what? I want to have my best chance possible. Um, and so I, I took it. I don't know if it helped or not, <laughs> um, but it was definitely not prescribed to me. Um, yeah, I think um, I think all three of us have had that had that experience where the the data behind using aspirin is not really great, but it's such a low harm impact. Um, that many, many people do it. And when you look at the timing, a lot of us will say, don't don't take it until after you've ovulated so that it doesn't accidentally interfere with ovulation because NSAIDs, whether that's aspirin or ibuprofen or any of that family of medication can potentially interfere with that. But I think we've got a lot of people on that and on progesterone just as empiric treatment of, hey, let's see if it works. So. Yeah, that's another one that this is a good solid tip of what not to do. So don't take Advil ibuprofen, which is like my drug of choice for pain. Yep. <laughs> Anytime after your period, like as soon as your period stops, you just stop taking it the rest of your cycle. Just don't do it <laughs> yep. um, because it will interfere with ovulation. So you need some of that, those inflammatory markers to actually ovulate. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so by taking ibuprofen. So if, if you happen to be somebody who has some significant metal schmerz, adopt yeah. some Tylenol. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't know that because everyone, you know, sometimes they, you know, they get bloating with ovulation. They're like, oh, I'm just going to take some, some Advil. Don't do it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amy. We are very appreciative of you coming in and sharing not only all of your scientific background and all of the work you've done and helping people track hormone levels and getting getting from information point zero to information point eighty five, but also some of your personal experience because so many of our our listeners just they really struggle in thinking, oh my gosh, I'm the only one. And I'm the only one who's having losses and I'm the only one who's not getting pregnant. And that is very much not the case. And so it's really, it's so helpful to hear from other people of, yep, you can do it. Take a deep breath, have your ice cream, curl in the fetal position and keep going. <laughs> but then get back up. <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you. We are very appreciative of you coming on and talking to us and walking us through a lot of this data as well as a, a lot of the life part that goes with it. 
Yeah. Happy to. I mean, this is everything that we believe in at Prove. We're just 15 women on a mission to help women get pregnant and try to create the best resources and education that we can. That's awesome. Wonderful. All right. Now to our listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Um, Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Stop by. Say hello. Send us pictures. Um, (laughs) Tell us your stories. All of the things. And you can also visit us on fertility.sensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for our Ask the Doc segment. We'd also love to hear episode ideas. Um, So let us know what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.